Well, today we're going to be going on continuing this series that we've been in for a while. And so if you're brand new, um, inside your program is a message note sheet. And we're going to be uh, taking that out right now. And we're going to pray. If you guys are ready to go, we're going to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right. God, we're just excited to be here as we talk about fallenness, as we talk about the history of our race, the story of our race, who we are apart from you. And people uh, far from God until you break in. We pray that you would just meet us in a powerful way. And give us a vision for our lives and your amazing love for us to transform us and send us out of here fired up to live the part, play the part in this epic drama you've called us to live. We pray that in your name. Amen. And well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in from the first part of the year called Epic the Vision. And uh, for those of you who are brand new, I want to welcome you. Uh, this is a, a series that's based on a study from a letter in the New Testament that was written from the Apostle Paul to a group of Christ followers in the city, near the city of Ephesus, which was a major city in the Roman Empire, uh, about 250,000 people in a province called, uh, uh, called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And, uh, and so Paul writes this letter, and as we've seen in this series, that Paul is laying out this epic vision that God has for all of creation. Uh, it's a, a vision that started before time began. It's a vision that's being worked out right now in real time. It's a vision that we brought to fruition and fulfillment when Jesus comes back at the end of time. And, and so we've been studying this vision, our part we play in it. If you were here last week, Dre did a great job just covering the last part of chapter one where Paul kind of lays out this really epic prayer. And his, his prayer basically is that God would open our eyes supernaturally so we could understand this vision and the part we play in it. Uh, because he wants us to understand this is not theory, uh, this is not theology, this is reality. And so he says, God, would you open, you know, open the eyes of our heart that we could see the reality of this vision uh, that you've cast and, and that we're a, a part of. Well, so today we're moving into chapter 2, and we're moving into a brand new section of Ephesians. And it's, uh, it's also equally epic, and what Paul is going to focus on in this section is who we were before we came to Jesus. So chapter 1, we saw how he chose us before time and so on. But uh, before we came to Jesus, who were we? What did he have to do in order to rescue us, bring us back, restore us, and make us the people we are created to be? And so if you have your Bibles, um, let's go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 2. If you got your apps, let's go ahead and turn them on. There on your note sheet, there's a section called uh, Epic, the Rescue. And we're going to go through the first uh, 10 verses today of chapter 2. So he starts off and he says, as for you, so let's start, stop there. Um, you know, who are you? Uh, as for you, remember, let's set the stage. Chapter 1, he's writing to these Christians, mostly pagan, mostly come out of a pagan Gentile background in the area of Ephesus. He's writing to them, and he says, you know, before time began, God chose you. And he chose you uh, that you could come to him. He chose you could be forgiven. He chose you could be adopted, become part of his family with all rights and privileges. He chose you to receive the gift of his spirit, his very presence in your life to lead and guide and direct you. He chose to gift you to be part of this huge project to bring all of creation under the leadership of Jesus, your chosen people, right? Now, in chapter 2, then, He's coming back and saying, let's talk about who you were before that happened, before God called you. And so he says, as for you, yeah, your, your past, he says, before you came to Jesus, uh, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
So he says, you're, you're spiritually dead. You're physically alive, but, but spiritually you were dead. You were unaware of the true God. You didn't have a relationship with the You may have been religious. You may have been following pagan gods. You may have been philosophical, but you didn't know the real God. You were dead to God. It was like you didn't have any awareness of who he really was. And he said, so you were dead in your trespasses, your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this What? This world. And so what we're going to see in this passage is we're going to see the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? And so he says, you used to be kind of part of this fallen human race, and you were kind of follow, you were on the wrong path. You were, you were heading down the wrong path. And he says, um, the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air. Now, who's that? Satan, right? The ruler of the kingdom of air. We'll talk about that more later. The spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient. Now, it's interesting because in the Greek, what it actually says is among the sons of disobedience. And this is Paul's description for the human race, the sons of disobedience. I used to watch a show until I got too convicted. It was called Sons of Anarchy. It's a motorcycle show, right, right up my alley. And, uh, and so, you know, they had Harley, so what's not to like? But anyway, uh, but anyway, uh, Paul's saying that, hey, before you came to Christ, you were part of this fallen race. Uh, you're all sons, we're all sons of disobedience. We were, we were not pursuing God. We were not pursuing his right and true and good. Uh, we were under the spell of Satan himself. We were under his leadership. We were dead to God. And it gets worse. <laughs> Verse 3. He says, all of us. And I want you to catch that. Now, remember, Paul is a highly educated, very religious, spiritual Jew, Right? But he includes himself. He says, it doesn't really matter whether you're a good kid, a wild child, uh, or you're a religious person. You know, apart from Jesus, you are part of the fallen race. And he says, so all of us, uh, we lived among them at one time, and we gratified the cravings of our sinful nature, kind of our fallen human nature, this kind of DNA that we received uh, from, from Adam, spiritual DNA, uh, following its desires and thoughts. And so like the rest, we were by nature objects of what? Wrath. And so what's he saying? He's saying we're part of the fallen race and we're under the judgment of God. This, this world is under the judgment of God. We've rebelled, committed high treason against our king. We're all on death row. We're a fallen race, okay? Because that's the story. That's who you were. And then God showed up, okay? This is who you were. This is kind of the ultimate before and after story. Like you've seen those pictures, you know, for exercise or for weight loss or hair reception or whatever, you know. This is the ultimate before and after picture. This is who you were before, he says, but then God showed up. And so in verse 4, he says, but because of his great love, and I want you to catch that. This is a love story. We can, Paul keeps coming back to that. He says, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy... We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When it comes to mercy, he's loaded. Yeah, he's got a lot. And so he's rich in mercy. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. So we were spiritually dead. We weren't seeking God. We weren't pursuing God. But he made us alive in Christ. And he says, it's by grace you've been saved. He can't hold himself back. He's going to just throw that in there. He'll come back in a couple minutes and talk a couple verses to talk what he's talking about. And he says, and God raised us up with Christ. And he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And so we've talked about this back in chapter 1. 
Paul says that as members of the fallen race, we were organically linked to Adam. Before we come to Jesus, we're in Adam. Remember that? This whole concept that we're in Adam, we're connected. We're part of his race. And so as the leader of our race, we inherit his spiritual DNA, but we are also responsible for his actions, for his choices, because he's the leader of our race. And so he led our race astray. We've been at war with God. We're connected to Adam. But what Paul says is when we come to Jesus, we are now connected to Jesus. Remember, I use the analogy, we go online with Jesus. His resources become our resources. So just like Adam sinned and we got the results, Jesus lived a life of obedience and we get the results. So we go online. And so as a result of that, we share his death. We share his resurrection, the power of his resurrection, but we also share his ascension into heaven itself. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, conquering the demonic powers, and took his place as rightful leader and ruler, King Jesus, over all of creation, Paul says we are connected with him. We are seated with him there. We are linked with him. That's our true identity. As followers of Jesus, we have authority and power over the demonic realm as a result. You see? So Paul says that all that Jesus has gone through, we inherit that just like all that Adam went through, we inherit that. And so the question is, so why did, why did God do this? Why did he come after us? Why did he make us alive? We were his enemies. Uh, we hated him. We wanted nothing to do with him. And so why did he come after us when we were under the spell? And in verse 7, it says, in order that in the coming ages, and I love that term, the coming ages, Paul is looking into eternity. We, we sang that song today about the, the love of God, like the waves on the sea. And, and I, this is kind of how I picture this. The coming ages, it's like Paul is looking into eternity, seeing age after age, just crashing upon the shores of time forever, like waves on the sea. He says that the reason he made us alive is so in those coming ages. What's he want to do? The coming ages... He might show the incomparable riches, nothing you've ever experienced like this before in your life, you can't compare it to anything else, of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so why did he do this? Because he wants to love us forever. He has chose us because he, wants, he, he made us come alive. He rescued us. He saved, why? Because he wants to love us forever with this, in, in this uh, riches of his grace. And so now Paul comes back to this concept of grace that he mentioned before, and he wants to make it really clear that this relationship with God that we've entered into with Christ followers, it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our performance. There's like nothing about you or nothing about me that made God say, so I'm going after that one. Now, they're, hey, they're really seeking me. They have a good heart. Or There's nothing about it. We were all sons of disobedience. We were in high rebellion when he came after us. And he says in verse uh, 8, for it's by grace that you have been saved. It's through faith. In other words, through trusting God. It's something we do. We're just going to trust him to save us. And this is not of yourselves. In other words, this salvation event is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And he said, that's not by works. It's not by any performance, anything we've done, so that no one can boast. There's no one who can stand before Jesus and say, I know why you chose me. It's because of this. And uh, then he goes on, he says, for we are God's workmanship. And just a great, great word. This word workmanship in the Greek is the word poema. It's where we get our word poem. Good, yeah, good. 
Yeah, poem is where we get our word poem from. Uh, and so um, uh, it says, we are God's poem. The interesting thing is, this word in the Greek Old Testament, you know, the Greek version of the Old Testament, um, you may not know this, but it's kind of something good for you to know. In the early church, they would usually read not Hebrew scriptures. They would read the Greek translation, just like we read an English translation of the, you know, the Greek. They would read a Greek translation of the Hebrew, and that's called the Septuagint. And so that was kind of their Bible, the early church, for the most part, was the Septuagint. And so because most of them, you know, these Gentiles, they can't understand Hebrew, right? So just like we read English, they're reading the Greek. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word poema was often used to describe the creation of the world, God's creation of all things. And that seems to be what Paul is talking about here because look what he says next. We are God's workmanship, his poema, and he says created. There it is, created. See, we're cre- it's a new creation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And we'll talk about this later, but he's not thinking about the, the Boy Scout walking the little old lady across the street for getting the marriage badge. It's like in our culture, uh, it's like good works has become almost like a bad term, you know? And, and so that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about living a whole life that's transformed, that makes a difference, and helps bring all of creation under the leadership of Jesus. And we'll talk about that. But he says we're created uh, to do good works, which God prepared in advance, either before time or before we came to him, either way, that he, that he's, that he has an assignment for our lives. And so this is what I want you to catch, is that when you come to Jesus, you become part of this epic plan, you discover you're part of it, that you're not just saved to go to heaven, you're saved to be transformed, to become like Jesus, and to join him in this epic mission to bring all things under the leadership of King Jesus, and he has uniquely gifted each one of us to do, uh, carry out assignments that he has planned for us before the beginning of time, you see? And this is why our lives are epic, because we are part of this incredible plan, and we each play an important role in that plan, and we'll talk more about that uh, later on, right? So, so that's the passage. And so Paul stands back from this, this kind of epic uh, story, and he says in chapter 1, he says, I want you to understand as you've come to Jesus, you were chosen before time. You were chosen to be part of this movement. You were chosen to be forgiven. You were chosen to be adopted. You were chosen to receive the gift of his spirit to empower you to live a new life. You were chosen to be part of this incredible eternity and be part of this whole plan to bring all creation under Jesus. And I'm just praying for you. I'm praying that God would open the eyes of your heart so you can see the reality about who you are in this high, epic calling on your life. He says, okay, now time out. Let's remember who you were before Jesus came into your life. You were a wreck. You were part of this fallen race that was living in rebellion against God, following Satan himself, you were under the judgment of God, but God in his mercy reached out and because his amazing love caused you to come alive, he resurrected you from the grave just like Jesus came out of the grave. He recreated your life so you could have a new purpose and be part of this epic calling of God. Okay, so that's where we've come so far in Ephesians, right? Now, this is to me one of the most important passages in all the Bible in understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus and understanding this epic story that, that Paul is unfolding. And so what I want to do today is a couple things. I want, first of all, to lay out uh, five what I'm calling big picture realities, okay? uh, uh, big realities of who you are, who I am, what it means to be a follower of Jesus that flow out of this passage. 
and then come back at the end and ask three critical questions about how much we're kind of pressing into these realities. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Epic, the Realities, and I'm going to run through these fairly rapidly. I won't take a lot of time. Now that we've walked through the passage, you're going to be clear. I just want to put neon lights around them, highlight them, so we take them with us, so we can kind of become part of our mindset as we follow Jesus to understand life from his point of view. So here we go. Number one, the first thing that Paul wants us to understand is that we are fallen. In other words, there's something desperately wrong with us as the human race. It's not just bad education. It's not just we grew up on the wrong side of town. It's not just that our, our parents didn't love us. It's not just there's not, you know, too much poverty in the world. It's not that there's just uh, not enough opportunity. Uh, those are all important issues. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to help work towards solving those issues. But Paul wants us to understand that there is something desperately wrong at the heart of the human race. Uh, we live in a culture today where often you will hear this, whether it's in media or education, that people are basically good. That, that, people, that we're all basically, and that, that kids are basically good, and what happens is they're just born into the wrong families, that there's not enough love shown to them, they're raised the wrong way, harsh parenting, bad role models, uh, lack of proper education, lack of opportunity, and this is why the way the world is. But what the Bible is saying so clearly is that is not it. There's something, those are issues and those are influencers, no question, but there is something much deeper than this. And you know it and I know it. If you look, if you study history at all, if you study the history of the human race, the history of the human race is a history of violence. It's a history of oppression. It is a history of manipulation. It's a history of war. It's a history of slavery and uh, murder. And it's, it's, a, it's a horrible history. It's interesting, you know, back in World War, before World War I, it was in the, in the heydays of the start of the theory of evolution that it had started, you know, in the 1800s. And, and so it had captured the heart of culture in, in general. And so there was this basic understanding that we are getting better and better that uh, the world's getting better and better, we are evolving socially, and one day we will kind of usher in utopia because as we, as we reduce poverty, we reduce crime, we understand, we make right decisions, and then World War I hit. The war to end all wars. And then World War II hit with the atomic bomb. And by the end of those two wars, we had moved from a very positive culture to a very pessimistic culture. And whether you study human, whether you study human history, whether you study your own life experience, whether you study your personal life, we know this, right? Why are there so many self-help books at Barnes & Noble? Why is it the largest section, nonfiction section, in, the, in bookstores? Because there's something wrong with us, and we desperately are looking for something to help. And Paul says, Here, here's the thing. It's worse than you think. It's not just education. It's not just poverty. It, it's not like poor parenting. It's not just poor parenting. Uh, this is the human race. There's something desperately fallen. Today I asked Lauren if she would sing that song we started the day with. And I, I love his song, Sarah McLaughlin's song from 2003, in her, her CD uh, Afterglow. 
you know, first, first uh, cut on the, on the album. And uh, I put it there in your notes. Here's, a, as far as I know, a non-believer, as far as I know. And, and she's just wrestling with this issue in her own life of why can't I be what I want to be? And I put some of the words there in your note sheet. Is heaven, it's really a prayer. You know, she doesn't say God, she says heaven. But uh, she says, heaven bend to take my hand. Lead me through the fire. Be the long-awaited answer to a long and painful fight. Truth be told, I've tried my best, but somewhere along the way, I got caught up in all there was to offer, and the cost was so much more than I could bear. Have you been there? <laughs> We've been down that road, haven't we? He says, we all begin with good intent. Love was raw. It was young. We believed that we could change ourselves. The past could be undone, but we carry on our backs the burden that time always reveals in the lonely light of morning, in the wound that would not heal. It's the bitter taste of losing everything that I've held so dear. Though I've tried, I've fallen, I've sunk so low, I've messed up better, I should know. So don't come around here and tell me I told you so. This is the story of the human race. There's something broken, deeply broken. And Paul says it goes back to the fall. It goes back to this rebellion against God and that we are under the spell of the, of the evil Lord uh, that we have the DNA that's pulling us to the, the dark side, and that we uh, cannot save ourselves. We're, 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 we're kind of hopeless and helpless as a race, dead to God. Right? So that leads to number two. The second big picture of truth Paul wants us to understand is that salvation is supernatural. See, once you understand our predicament as a race, you understand why there is no way we can pull ourselves up from our, by our bootstraps. We can't resolve the problem because we are the problem. And so Paul makes this clear here that if we're going to be saved, if we're going to be rescued as a race, that it has to be supernatural. That help has to come from the outside. God's going to break in. So if you look at 2.4, this is exactly what he says. Chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, because of his great love, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. God breaks through supernaturally. I want you to catch what he's doing. He's saying when someone comes to Jesus, it is a supernatural act. It is a spiritual resurrection as much as Jesus coming out from the grave. That's, it has to be that way. Uh, he uses a different analogy. A few verses on, he goes on, he talks about creation. When you think of God creating the world, right, uh, out of nothing, our last series, Genesis Chronicles, God speaks and creation springs into being. Let there be light, and there is light. It's a supernatural act, creation. And Paul says this is what happens when a man or woman comes to Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 says God's, the God who said let there be light is the one who's spoken into our life. To lighten it up, we come, we come to Christ. And he, he uses this analogy of, of, of creation, that we are his workmen, created in Christ Jesus. So I think that, that if you're a Christian today, it's a miracle. You're a miracle. That as much as God spoke creation to being, he spoke you into being as a follower of Jesus. He spoke and you came alive. It's, it's supernatural. And this language of creation is language that Paul often uses to describe the conversion process. In fact, there on your note sheet, here's a verse that many of you will be familiar with. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. creation. He, comes, he uses this metaphor often. All right? 
And so he wants us to understand that when we came to Jesus, it wasn't because, hey, you were seeking God or you were hungry or you had a good heart. That may all be true, but that was because God was already working in you to draw you. Okay, that's a supernatural. Number three, third thing he wants us to understand is that salvation is a gift. He wants us to understand there's nothing in us, there's nothing in our resume, there's nothing in our performance. There was nothing about you that God said, hey, look at that one. Wow, that would be awesome. My team would be so much better. Like, they're amazing, you know. Uh, I'm going after them. Look at them. They're really trying. You know, there's nothing like that. I want you to catch this. Paul says, we were all, as the rest, sons of disobedience. So if you're a follower of Jesus, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with nothing you brought to the table. They said, hey, God, how about this? I've got this to offer. If you'd save me, here's what I can provide for you. Nothing that we can boast. Uh, And so Paul goes to great lengths to make sure we're really clear on this because it's so foundational for our whole relationship with God, and we'll talk more about that later. But if you look at verse 8 and 9, he says it's by grace, you know, God's love that we don't deserve. It's by grace that you've been saved. It's through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. I mean, can you, can you hear, like, he's, like he's, he's saying it four different ways, right? Like in verse 8, he says, it's by grace you can be saved. We could just stop there. I mean, we're done, right? It's by grace. It wasn't about you. But he's like, no, no, I'm, I want to make sure you're clear on this. It's not from yourselves. Okay, God, I, I mean, Paul, I get it. It's by grace, not from me. I get it. No, no, I don't think you do. He goes, uh, it's a gift of God. Okay, I got it. I got it. Okay, I got it now. No, you don't. Uh, it's, not by wor- it's not by works. Okay, I think I got it. No, you don't. Uh, so you can't boast. Right? It's like he just doesn't want to be any, any confusion about this. That if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a miracle. And it had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with your performance. It was all about him and his love. You are, were a wreck. You were part of fallen, sinful race, rejecting his leadership, wanting nothing. That's who you were. You were under judgment. He came purely because he loved you, because he wanted to. Right? It's interesting. Um, you know, this is, you may not know this, but this is the one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. He, Every religion is about what we do in order to make ourselves acceptable to God. It doesn't really matter whether it's uh, Islam with the five pillars or Buddhism with the eightfold path or Judaism with the law. Uh, It doesn't really matter if it's Hinduism with karma. You see, religion is about us reaching out to God and trying to earn his favor and approval so that he will accept us. Christianity is about God reaching out to us when we wanted nothing to do with him. It's interesting, one time C.S. Lewis was attending a conference in Britain of comparative, about comparative religion. Was, you know, okay, so you have scholars, world experts of around the world gathering to talk about world religion. You know, not a Christian conference. And he walked in the room one day, and they, were, they said, oh, Lewis, glad you're here. We've been discussing this. 
What would you say would be Christianity's unique contribution to world religion? Like, what, what is the, what is, how is it different than, like, what is it uniquely, lucid, that's easy. <laughs> it's grace. It's the only message of grace in all the world. See, religion is us reaching out to God. Christianity is God reaching out to us. So the message of Christianity is that you are way worse than you ever thought. But the good news is that God is way better than you ever thought. All right, number, uh, number four. Number four is that we're saved for a purpose. And, and I want you to catch this. I want you to go back and look at this because this is really uh, ironic. We were talking about it in our life group writing team meeting. But it's so funny. So many of us have grown up with memorizing. If you grew up in a Christian uh, church or maybe you came to Christ later and you had some good discipleship or something, one of the first verses we often memorize is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. The irony is, is we leave out verse 10, which is the whole point of the thing. And so... It's like, telling, it's like telling half the story and not putting the last chapter. But if you look at it, we're saved by grace, right? We got that down. He told us five times. And then verse 10, he says, for we are God's workmanship, his poema, and we're created a new creation in Christ. Why did he do that? To do good works, Right? So catch this, that as Christ followers, we are not saved by our works, but we are saved for works. That's the whole point. And for too long, so many times, we have thought that to be a Christian, like if you ask someone, what does it mean to be a Christian? You say, well, it's as Jesus in my heart, as a, my uh, personal Savior, and then so I can go to heaven. That is not Christianity. Or if it is, it's an anemic form. It's a truncated form. It's like, uh, you know, like a concentration camp person can form. It's, it's like sick. Like it's not healthy. The message of Christianity is that Jesus came after you to transform you to be like him. So that you in turn can become a force for good wherever you go. That you could join him and become like him and bring all creation under his leadership. And you've been uniquely gifted to do so. So we're not saved by works, we're saved for works. This is a topic we will come back to at least two more times in Ephesians. We will go into it in greater depth later because this becomes a major theme for Paul as he gets later to the practical part of the letter saying, hey, remember what I told you about you've been chosen to make a difference before time began. There are assignments for you be before you, know, you were even born uh, let me tell you how that works and how when you come to Jesus, Jesus uni uniquely gifts you and how we need your gifts in order to make this thing work. All right, so he's going to come back to it, and we'll come back to it a couple more times. Hey, number five. Number five is that spiritual warfare is real. Paul wants us to understand we are not alone in the universe. And it's certainly not just God and us and the angels. Um, he says in chapter 2 and verse 2, if you look at this, he says, you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit 
who is now at work in those who are disobedient, the sons of disobedience. So, so Paul says, before you came to Jesus, he says, this whole world is under the spell of the evil one. And I, and I want you to catch this biblically, what, what's being said here is when we rebelled against God as a race, we chose to turn our back on our creator and follow the great enemy. That was our decision. And when we did that, we put him in charge of our, the creation. We were created to be kings and queens over this, this world. And when we chose to follow him, we put him in charge. And so now, before we come to Christ, we're under a spell. And that looks so different in different people, right? The spell may be, in one person, the wild child person. Wild partier, you know, uh, kind of women, booze, whatever the thing is, just craziness, right? A hard living. And the next person, it can look like the good neighbor across the street that's a nice guy. Or in the next person, it can look like a highly religious person or highly spiritual person. But Paul says, these are just different tactics. Like Satan doesn't really care which way you go wrong. As long as you go wrong. Like he just needs to keep you away from what's right. He needs to keep you away from Jesus. And if you're more wired that, uh, hey, religion will keep you from Jesus, great. Let's do the religious thing. If you're more wired that, uh, hey, it's the wildlife, that's great. You're going to be the good moral person, upstanding citizen. Great. I don't care what you keep you away. Just here's Jesus. Just let's keep away from him. You see? And so he's, what Paul says is that when we come to Jesus, he says what actually happens is that we change sides in a spiritual war. And as a result of that, we have a new enemy. And so in this passage, Paul lays out the great triumvirate of the dark side. We've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he says, when you come to Jesus, you switch sides now, and you've been connected with Jesus, so now you have the power as a follower of Jesus to die to your old life. You have a power to be transformed and not be like the world around you, and you have a power to break, be released from the influence of Satan himself. And so this is what it means to be a Christ follower. He's stepping over that line. And so Paul will come back to this theme in a major way in chapter 6. When he says, all right, my finally, he says, I want you to be strong in the Lord. Quote, in the Lord, connected, connected online. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mighty power so you can stand against Satan's Tactics. For our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers, principalities, and powers of the dark, the dark world. You see? So here's what I want you to catch. Right here at the beginning of Ephesians, Paul says, let's, talk, let's go big. Let's talk epic. I've talked to you in chapter 1 about how God chose you before time, how he uh, forgave you, adopted you, filled you with his spirit, uh, called you to this incredible future. He says, now let's set the context. Here's who you were when he called you. You were far from God. You were part of a rebel race. You were in disobedience. You were a son of disobedience. You had, were following the dark side of your own fallen spiritual DNA, the dark desires. You were under the leadership of Satan himself, and you were on death row. Okay? But in that, into that darkness, God spoke. He raised you from the dead. He recreated you 
and he equipped you and called you to be part of this epic vision to bring all creation under King Jesus. Okay? So that's where we've been. Right? Now, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to ask three, what I'm calling three critical questions today. All right? So we're going to take this and say, how does that fit for our lives? How does it apply? And there in your note sheet, the first one to go rapidly, the second one, it's going to cut in the second two, it'll take it longer. But the first question there, epic three uh, critical questions. The first question is, have you responded to God's offer? Now, this question is really for those of you here who have not yet given your life to Christ. So you may have been coming for a while. Uh, you don't really know Jesus, but someone has invited you or you found this place on your own. But there's something intriguing. Uh, something's drawing you back. Something's speaking to you. You're finding it helpful. Uh, the question for you today, though, is are you responding? Because, because Paul's laying it out is pretty much just like he's not holding nothing back. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm a truth guy. Like, I'm a truth guy. Like, for example, like, hey, if you have something that's wrong, just tell me the truth, right? I can deal with whatever it is, but just tell me the way it is. Well, Paul is not sugarcoating this. He said, hey, here's the truth. The truth is before you come to Jesus, you're part of a rebel race. You may not have recognized that. You may have thought of that way, but you're part of a rebel race. You're kind of doing your own thing. You're living life as if God doesn't exist. You've known what's right. You've known what's wrong. You've often chosen the wrong. You're under the spell of Satan himself, and you're on death row. That's the truth about you before you come to Christ. And so he says, the amazing thing is that God in his love has come after you, and he's made a way for you to come home and be resurrected. To be not just forgiven, but resurrected, power to live a whole new life, a new creation. He says, but you have to trust. You have to trust him with your life. He says, well, it's, salvation's a gift. He says, it's by faith. I mean, you have to trust. Like when the fireman comes and the building's on fire and you're inside and you're lost, and he says, follow me. You got to trust. You can't save yourself, but you have to trust and you have to follow and so if you're here today and you've not yet given your life to Christ, this is the diagnosis of your life. And the good news is that God loves you and he's come after you and he has a whole new life for you and he's just anxious to forgive you and restore you and fill you with his spirit. But it's something you have to respond to. It's something that you have to give your life to. It's something you have to bow the knee to King Jesus and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, take me in, fill me with your spirit, teach me how to live. It, it requires an act of repentance and an act of faith. And so if you're here today and you've never made that decision, I want to give you that opportunity to do that. At the end of this message today, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. So I want you to be thinking about that and pondering that now. Now, for those of us who are Christ followers, two questions that really flow out of this kind of theme of love and this thing that super, uh, salvation is supernatural. And these are powerful questions. These are questions we have to come back to time and time again in our spiritual life. But here we go. Number one, number two on your sheet, is are you growing in God's love? And let me explain what I mean. Paul wants us to understand that this whole epic tale is a love story. I want you to look at your Bible, and I want you to go back to chapter one. This is how the story began, this epic vision, back in chapter one in verse four. It says in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, For he chose us in him 
before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Let me just be forgiven. And then what are the next two words? In what? In love he predestined us. This is a love story. You go to chapter 2. You go to verse 4. We can cover this today. In 2.4, he says, But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. And so while we were dead, far from him, enemies, because of his great love. And I love this verse 7 where he says the reason that he did this was basically so he could love us forever. And when we get to chapter 3, that we get to the end of chapter 3, which is the end of this first half of Ephesians where Paul's laying out the epic vision. He's tying it all together. After that, he's going to get real practical about how do you live out the, the practical vision. When you get to the end of chapter 3, I want you to look at this. Uh, you can look either on your, your Bible or your note sheet, but I'm, I'm going to go off my Bible here. Chapter 3, uh, in your verse... Um, 17, verse, yeah, verse 17. He says he's praying for them so that Christ, in the middle of the verse, let's go to the middle of the verse. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. And I want you to catch those words. Paul is comparing our life with Christ to a plant and to a building. He says, when you first come to Jesus, it's like you're a new plant and you're planted in Christ, but you're planted in love. Hey, you're planted in love. You come to know the love of God for the first time. You experience God loving you. You're planted in love. And then he says, he's going to, the second analogy is going to compare us to like a construction project, to a building that's established on a foundation. And so he says in 317, verse in, in B, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. In other words, that's how you started your Christian journey, that you may have power, catch that, through the Holy Spirit. In other words, God would open our eyes. That's what he's praying and I have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. You know, I'm just praying that God would open your eyes to see how deeply you are loved. And he says, and he goes on, and he says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Like you just can't even begin to understand it. You'll never get it. You'll never come to the end of it. You'll never come to a place in your life. You go, okay, I get it now how much he loves me. It's like, no, there's always more. It's like, it's, it's always more. It's, it surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the measure of all the fullness of God. So now he uses a third analogy of a measuring cup. I just, I'm just praying that God just, just opens your eyes and start pouring in the love of God into your life. It is just overflowing with the love of God. You just understand that you don't really understand God until you understand this. This is the fullness of God. He says, this is why I'm praying for your life. But you would understand, as he gets to the end of describing this vision in chapter 3, I just pray that you would experience in your life this amazing love for you. To know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are deeply loved. You were loved before time. You were loved when you were an enemy. You were loved when you wanted nothing to do. He came after you. He's been loving you every step of the way. And the reason he chose you is so he can love you forever. And so I'm just praying that God would just open the eyes of your heart so you could know the love of God. Now, here's the thing. What I've found, though, is that often in our lives as Christ followers, and instead of going deeper into the love of God, the longer we walk with Christ, we often go farther away from the love of God. And let me tell you how it happens. When you first come to Jesus and he opens your eyes to who he is, 
and you experience his love, it is so clear that it has nothing to do with us, right? Because when we come, we, we, don't know, we don't know our Bibles. We don't know which is up. We don't know much about theology. We've often been living lives of sin or obvious disobedience. And so we experience the love of God. It's like, obviously, it's not about me. He just loves me. And we begin to grow in that love. And we, our love, our, the roots start to go deeper and deeper under that love. But something often happens along the way that is after a while, our lives start transforming. And after a while, we learn more Bible. And after a while, we know the new rules. And after a while, we have Christian friends. And after a while, things have come together. And somewhere in there, we start feeling like, you know what? I know God loved me when I had nothing going on, but that's because I was sort of ignorant. And, and now that I know more, I'm kind of responsible for more, which is true. But then we take that next step, and, and so we start sliding in. So when I am performing well, he loves me more than when I'm not performing well. And so what happens is we become Christians who are trying to earn the love of God. We become like when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm praying, when I uh, am living an obedient life, when I'm giving, when I'm serving, when I'm not cussing too much, God loves me, right? He loves me. And hey, when I'm not doing those things and I've fallen back into some sin or I'm not spending time with God or I'm not... I don't think he loves me as much. And very subtly, without realizing, we develop a performance mindset where we think the love of God depends on our performance. And nothing will ruin our Christian walk faster. The thing we have to perform to earn. Can, can you hear this? He loved you when you were a mess. And he's never going to stop loving you. If you're a follower of Jesus... You were chosen before time so he could love you forever. That's his, that's his goal. And if you're in Christ, he will never stop loving you. You don't have to earn that love. Now, just to be clear, this is a real relationship. What's going on here? <laughs> like, I don't know if that's like, go, go, go. I love that point. Um, it's a real relationship, right? And so this is not like a fictitious relationship. It's a real relationship. God is our father, and he loves us. And so there's times where he's pleased with us, and times he's not pleased with us. There are times we're living in disobedience. He's not happy about that. He's not like, hey, there's my boy. You, know? like, you go, Mike. You know, it's good. You know, it's loving you. And he's, like, he's not going to be happy with that. We're told we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Right? We can, we can make God angry or upset. You don't, you don't believe me? Check out the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, hey, get your act together. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You know? They says, oh, those I love, I discipline. <laughs> I, you see, there, there's, it's a very real relationship. And he, it's not like he doesn't care or he's going to overlook it all. He will discipline us, but it's a discipline of love. He'll never stop loving us, right? And there's tremendous freedom that comes as we begin to go deeper in that love of God. And that love provides a, a safety. It provides a motivation. And when you know you're deeply loved, how do you respond? You want to love back, right? You, you, it draws you. 
to someone who would love me like that. And so the question for you is, are you going deeper in the love of God? And this would be a prayer for us. This prayer in chapter 3 is a great prayer to be praying all the time. God, I want to know the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of your love. I want to be filled. Would you show me your love? It's a great prayer for us to pray. The second question, number three on your sheet, the second question for us as Christ followers, is are you trusting God for your growth? This interesting thing, this is kind of similar to point two. It's, it's a different point, but there's a similar process. Um, one of the things we've learned today is that when we come to Christ, it's a supernatural work of God, right? That, there's, that, that salvation is supernatural from beginning to end. That, that coming to Christ is like being raised from the dead. Being Coming to Christ is like a new creation where God speaks over our lives and, and we're, we come alive. But what we often don't understand as followers of Jesus is our salvation is supernatural from beginning to end. So, for example, Paul often talks about this, but there in your note sheet, just a famous verse, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, he who began a good work in you, so who's that? God. Yeah, God's the one who began. We've, we've, we've studied that today. We were spiritually dead. We were lost. We had nothing, and he's the one who made us alive. So he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Like, he will continue to do this work. So remember, we study, we are his workmanship. We're his project. He started the project. He is the general contractor of this project. And he's going to continue to supernaturally carry out this project, this change process, this remodel of our lives, he's going to continue it until the very end. And uh, this is one of those things where, once again, we can lose track of this. Because what happens, we first come to Christ, it seems so obviously supernatural. Right? Like, like, I remember, I was talking with my wife this week, and she was talking about when she came to Christ, how she had tried to read her Bible before coming to Christ, and it was just like sawdust, could make no sense of it. And then she went to this weekend retreat and gave her life to Christ. She came back on Monday, opened up that same Bible, and it was just like, she was like literally, like who changed the words? Like it just makes total sense. And when you come to Jesus, he, he changes you supernaturally. You have new perspectives, new hungers, um, new uh, attitudes, new values, right? What was right before now seems wrong. What's wrong seems right. Things you could never imagine yourself that you want to do and things you used to always do. It's like, whoa, I don't want to do that anymore, right? And it's not all easy, but it's clearly supernatural. And so when you come to Jesus, it's real, like you don't know anything. You don't know your Bible. You don't know which end is up. You know, when they're passing the, you know, they're passing the bag at the end of the church, you're supposed to take money in or put it out. You know, it's like, you, you, like, you know, it comes to communion. It's like, this is not much of a meal. I don't know. It's called the Lord's Supper, but it's kind of stingy. I mean, you, you, you don't know what's going on, right? You're like, uh, you know, where's this guy, you know, uh, Habakkuk? Like, where is that? You know, uh, where's hesitation? You know, you don't, you don't know anything. 
And so you are very much in a faith posture. You're very much in a receiving posture. You're very trusting. God, I don't know what to do. I'm just trusting you. And, and so God starts working. And God starts changing. And, lead, and we see him working. And it's supernatural and so awesome. But what so often happens is that as we walk with Jesus for a while, he starts transforming our lives. And we learn our Bible. And we learn the rules. And we learn this and we learn that. And we see transformed. And at a certain point, what tends to happen is we kind of say, God, it's so awesome. You got me started. But uh, I think I've got it from here. <laughs> and we don't do this consciously, but we do it unconsciously. And we start taking responsibility for our growth. And the way it shows up is we start depending on our willpower. We start depending on us memorizing verses. We start depending on reading our Bible and prayer and fasting and serving. Okay, all good things. But we start looking at if I do these things, then I can control my growth. And if I do these things, I can change myself. And all of a sudden, you wake up one day. For my wife, it happened about two years into becoming a Christian. She's like, is this all there is? I've learned the rules. I kind of get my Bible. I get the thing. But is this all there is? And what's happened is we begin to subtly take responsibility for our own growth. And the moment you do that, the power goes out of your life. And the reason is that the power, it's our faith that connects us to the power of God. It's our trust that connects us to the power of God. And when we start taking primary responsibility for our growth, we stop growing. And it can lead to a, a very dry life spiritually. A lot of white knuckling it. And you see, what Paul wants us to understand is no salvation is supernatural from beginning to end. And so we need to trust him. It, he has primary responsibility. It's his job to initiate change. It's my job to respond to change. And that's why here at Rocky Peak, I'm always saying this, that our job is very simple. It's to listen and to follow. Because if we're listening and following, it means he's leading the way. And as he shows you, hey, you need to be spending more time in the word. We, yes, we get in the word. And as he shows you, you need to be serving. We, we, okay, we're serving. We're taking the next step. But he's leading the way. We are. Does that make sense? And I'm telling you, as you begin to move into this, the power of God gets released in your life. Because we were never created. The Christian life is not a rowboat. It's a sailboat. And that sail is the Holy Spirit. It's the wind of his spirit. And so many times we're trying to row ourselves along. And when it's, it's time to, hey, no, we, where's the spirit blowing? And we're going to put the sail up and set our sails. And we're going to follow where he leads. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, this is just an amazing story, an amazing journey we're on of a God that before time began chose us to be part of his movement, part of his kingdom, part of his family, You've forgiven us, you've adopted us, you've filled us with your spirit. You caused us to be resurrected from the dead. You created us afresh, anew. You've empowered us, you've called us to join you in this cosmic mission. 
And so, Lord, we pray that today that we would be in a place that we are growing deeper in your love and we'd be learning to trust in your leadership and that you would be the initiator and we would be the cooperators. And our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to talk to those of you here that maybe you've not given your life to Christ, maybe you've not even understood the message of Jesus. You've not even understood this message of grace. But I want to speak to you for a minute. I want you to understand this, that Jesus could care less where you're coming from. He could care less what you've done or what sins you've committed or, or how bad you've been or how good you've been. What he cares about is you'll trust him to save you. And if you want to give your life to Christ today, I want to give you that chance. And I'm going to lead us in a very simple prayer right now. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If this expresses a desire of your heart, I would ask you to pray along with me under your breath or in your heart. God knows if you're sincere and he will respond. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, I ask you into my life. I ask you to forgive me for all my rebellion against you. I pray that you'd forgive me, that you'd adopt me into your family, that you'd give me the gift of your spirit and teach me how to follow you both in this life and the next life. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If you pray that prayer, In a few minutes, we're going to be worshiping and receiving the offering. And inside your program is a little card called the Connect Card. And if you want to give your life to Christ, I'm going to ask you to fill out that card in the back. Say, Mike, I gave my life to Christ. And this week, we'll send you a a letter just to help you get started in your new walk. But I just want to say today, if if that's you, welcome to the kingdom. Because know that you've been chosen before time began to be part of something amazing. And your journey has just started. And so, God, we pray now as we come, as we worship, as we bring your offering, we pray you take us deeper into your love, deeper into your grace. Like the song says, we want to sink deeply into that. And we want to grow in your love and in trust that you are the leader of our lives. And as we trust you, you will change us as we follow. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together as we worship. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have rescued us. Though you're once spiritually dead, in our transgressions and sins, we were following the ways of this world. We were under the spell of the evil one. We were following the desires and the thoughts of our fallen nature. And we were under the sentence of death. But because of your amazing love, you've broken in historically in Christ. You've made a way for us to come home and you've broken into our lives individually. You've turned on the light. You've raised us from the dead. We are new creations in Christ, supernaturally raised. And God, that's a process that goes on, not just from the beginning, but all the way through. That is you, our strength, and it's our power. And it's our desire, God, to grow deeper in your love. It's our desire that we would learn to trust you to release your power in our lives. So we would not trust ourselves, but we would trust you as the lead contractor on this project of our lives. And that you would make us your project as we are, and you would release us then to be used to make a difference in the world. And God, we pray this week you would open our eyes to see that love of God that is so great, and these things that we've talked about today, the realities, they're not theory, they're not theology, they're reality. And we pray you'd open our eyes in a fresh way that we would be a force for good wherever we go. And we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.
Hey, just want to remind you as we go, uh, right over here on the side, you need prayer for anything, uh, love to have you uh, come over for prayer. Uh, Israel people, we're having our meeting, orientation over in the summit and at 7.30. And uh, I will see you next week as we continue this journey on uh, the next passage in Ephesians. God bless. Mm.